There's an old story of Francis of Assisi, and Francis of Assisi was an old friar in Italy, and he had a number of apprentices, and one day he decided he was going to go down to the village nearby, and he grabbed an apprentice, and he said, do you want to come down to the village to me to preach? And the apprentice treasured the opportunity, and he thought all the way to the village of what he was going to say and how he was going to preach, and they got to the village, and Francis began to talk to the butler. To the butler. Began to talk to the to the butcher and he began to pray with the butcher. And then he went to the cobbler and he opened the word and began to counsel or counsel the cobbler. And then he went to the teacher of the school and began to pray and think and talk with them. And then he went to the woman who had lost her husband, began to pray with her and counsel her and help her. And all through the morning, Francis went around. Ministering to people with the word, with counsel, with prayer. And he turned to his apprentice, his young apprentice, and said, all right, it's time to go back to the abbey. And that young apprentice began to walk back to the abbey, but he finally just said, I thought we came to preach. And Francis of Assisi said, that's exactly what we've been doing all morning. I don't think Francis of Assisi didn't believe that it was appropriate to declare the word to the village, but he had a teaching message to his young apprentice that his life preaches a message to. I think James, the author of the New Testament book, James, the brother of Jesus, would have said amen. If you know that book, you know that faith is a faith that works. Authentic faith has action. It's the real deal. And James won't let us get away from action that accompanies our faith because talk is cheap. So let me ask you this morning, Christ Community Church, what's the message that your life is preaching? What's the message, parents, your life is preaching to your kids? What's the message, kids, your life is preaching to your siblings and to your friends? What's the message that you're preaching at work, in the home? What's the message that your life is preaching? I'm excited to study this short book in the New Testament. We're taking a break from Genesis. We'll come back to it in the fall. But over the summer, we're going to be looking at the uh, book of James in the New Testament. And I want to introduce, just introduce to you James this morning. I want to, you to understand more about the background of his life. And I want also to show you his audience, a very distinct audience that was going through hardship and then I want to draw out some themes, some themes of the book that we're going to discover. There are a lot of truths here, even in the first verse of James, which is effectively, hello. We preach in an expositional way here, and I basically this morning am taking hello. My name is James. So that's where we're going. You're a tough crowd this morning. All right. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersions, greetings. Like I said, James, hello. But there's great truths as we look at the life of James. And I want to give you some background. Your first truth this morning, and I'm going to unpack it, but I'm going to give it to you first. Your first truth this morning is this. Regardless of status, believers should be marked by humility. I want you to think about James. So there... There are a number of Jameses, if I can say it that way, in the New Testament. Like, it's kind of like the name John in our culture. Or if you go to Italy, I've been to Italy a number of times, and Stefano, everybody is named Stefano. And so in this day, when you look at the New Testament, there are at least four, if not five, 
James is mentioned, so which one is this? It's either one of two men. It's either James, the son of Zebedee, which is John, the apostle John's brother, right? The sons of thunder, Peter, James, John. It's either him or it's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who grew up in the household that Jesus grew up in, with Mary being his mother and Joseph being his father. And it looks like in church history, we eliminate um, James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, because he died in Acts 12, which was way too early for him to write, not way too early, but too early for him to write this book. And so that leaves us James, the brother of Jesus, the guy who grew up in Jesus's home. Do we have any second born children here? Second born children, quite a few second born children here. A lot of second born children that have that syndrome, right? Where the oldest has never done anything wrong. The pictures that you have of like your first year, you got less than your older sibling because mom and dad have more pictures of them. You ever feel that way as a second born? Well, listen, you have no idea how bad it would have been for James because Jesus was literally the perfect child. He was literally the perfect child. Even when he turns 12 and he goes to the temple, I think if I'm, if I'm James, the brother of Jesus, I'm thinking finally they got him. All right, He stayed in the temple. We were supposed to go back home. We got him dead to rights. And then Jesus, his brother, says, Mom, I'm at my father's house. And Mary doesn't discipline him. How would that feel to be James, the brother of Jesus? That's one situation that I look at and go, we had him. So this is his upbringing. He watched his brother Jesus. I wonder what that would have been like to be the brother of Jesus. The Bible says some things about James. Do you remember in John chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 13, Jesus starts his ministry and he comes back to his hometown. He comes back to Nazareth. And what does he say? A prophet's not even welcome, not welcome in his hometown. And it says his household didn't believe. It says James and the brothers didn't believe in him yet. So the early life of James, I don't know if it's because he had the younger sibling thing going on. I don't know. But the writing of scripture says that James and the brothers did not believe that their brother was Messiah early on. And yet you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, and you learn about James. When he saw the resurrected Christ, when he saw his brother resurrected, he believed. And the brothers believed. I wonder what that conversation would have been like. I wonder if Jesus said, hey, do you believe me now? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that James became a follower of his older brother. He believed that his brother was the savior. You know, that's a great reference check. You think about the reference checks you do. Some of you hire people. And who, what are you looking for in a reference check? You're looking for someone that lives close and knows this person well to tell you about their character. And so if you're looking for an apologetic for Jesus and who he is, his family believed that he was the savior. His brother, who didn't believe now, believes. And you see more about James in the book of Acts, the brother of Jesus. You see that he and his brothers were there when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. They were there with the disciples to witness that and be a part of that. So they are following Christ. They are Christians. And then you get down to Acts chapter 15. And Acts chapter 15 is really important. Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem council. So here's what's going on. Most of the people in the way of Jesus that followed the way of Jesus, which is what it was called at this point, were Jewish Christians. And, but now the Gentiles were beginning to believe in Christ. And the Gentiles had a different way, and the Jews had a different way for 1,500 years. And what the Jews wanted the Gentiles do, to do is to effectively become Jews. 
to be circumcised, to follow the law. And so you have a massive moment in the book of Acts, chapter 15, where Peter, where Peter and Paul come and they say, we shouldn't require them to do all these extra things to be a part of the church, to believe the gospel. So here's a potential, from an earthly perspective, here's a potential place where the gospel gets perverted, to the, where the gospel could have works added to it. And here's the thing. Who stands up at the Jerusalem Council and has the last word? There's discussion and argument about these things amongst the council of elders who believers. And you know who stands up at the end of it? The moderator. You know that? You ever been in meetings where the moderator of the meeting just sits there and everybody talks? And at the end, there's the definitive word. And this is what James does at the end of the Jerusalem Council to silence everything. And he says, men, listen to me. And he basically says, leave the Gentiles alone. They believe in Christ. We do not need to add works to salvation. End of story. This is the same James that we have when we come to James chapter 2. We got questions, right? What does it mean that you're saved by your works? So all these questions we had, the, the primary question of the book of James that, we, that troubles us is, James, are you saying you're saved by works? This is the same guy who said no. Faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, back in, in Acts 15. So this is a man who believes in faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what we know about him. And then you get to Acts 21. And I've given you some of these references, but I'm just trying to give you a summary of his life. In Acts 21, guess what? Both Peter and Paul, when they're in trouble, they come to James. They come to Jerusalem. And what we find out in Acts 21 for sure is that James is the leader of the first church of the world in Jerusalem. He's the leader. He's the pastor. He's the elder of this church. This is who we're dealing with. History tells us a number of things about James, if you like history. Josephus tells us that he was named James the Just. People called him James, James the Just because he cared about works. He cared about faith in action. Faith in action. Eusebius Early church, some of you guys study about this, right? Am I totally boring you? Eusebius said they named him Camel Knees because he prayed so much. It wore, wore uh, things on his knees because he was such a man of prayer. This is how James was known. He was a leader of a poor and persecuted and racially profiled church. This is who James was. And that ended up getting him killed. In 62 AD, his authentic faith ended up getting him martyred and killed. That's who James is. Look at James 1.1, though. James 1.1, he doesn't introduce, look how he doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't say, hey, James, I'm the pastor of the first church of the world. James, the just. James, camel knees, because I pray so much. James, he didn't name drop about his brother. Say, hey, I lived in the household of Jesus. I know him best. That's not how he introduces himself. Not only that, if you just compare the way James introduces himself to even the way Paul introduces himself, you notice how understated it is? This is the shortest greeting or intro that you're going to find in the epistles. James, a servant. This word doulos we get out of servant means a slave. He's a slave to who? He's a bond servant. He's a humble man to who? You know, we talk about being... Um, humble. We talk about people who are humble, but there's an object to it. There's a look at it. If you look at it, it says a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, James, he didn't need any walk-up music. 
He didn't give a long bio. He didn't give a long resume he could have. He called himself. He identified himself as a bondservant, a slave to Christ. What an understated thing. And here's a principle for you this morning. He's a man of status. Within his community, he is a man of status. He's the leader of the first church of the world. And yet he sees his life through the glory of Jesus. Do you see it? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's submitting his life to Christ. I guess we could say it this way. See, humility only comes when we submit ourselves, as the Bible says, to the older brother. And the older brother is Jesus, literally for James. Humility comes through submission to the older brother. There's a lot of application as we look at the life of James. Can God save and use those who grew up close to Jesus? Those who grew up in church, kids listening to the gospel every week but not believing and later on believing? Yes. And so maybe if you're listening in live stream or you're here and somebody drug you here, Maybe you've grown up in the church. There's a good chance that many people, many people here have grown up in the church. But have you trusted? Have you submitted yourself to Christ? Have you believed upon Christ to save you from your sins and change you? That's what it looks like to live in humility. That's how you live in humility. Does God care about flash or faithfulness? See, in leadership in a church... Leadership in the church, and this is not often what you see, but leadership in a church means that you are called to be a servant, that you are called to give up your life, that you are called to be humble. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does your status or desire for status interfere with your servant-heartedness? Just a question to consider. The, the further you get up the scale, whether it's in your church or in this world, does it have a negative effect on your willingness to set up a chair at church, a willingness to serve, a willingness to care for people? See, we live in a different kind of kingdom, with a different kind of king who calls us to serve and humble ourselves that we might be exalted. What would others say your life is marked by? I think we can look at James's life as not a perfect man, a man who came to faith later, but a man who was a humble servant of Christ. So we've got to know James, but what about those he's writing to and their situation? Look at the text. The text says, the second part of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Anybody turn on the air? I'm about to pass out over here. Somebody, it's not working. All right. I just, I just need like a towel. Like a, I'm going to be the towel preacher here in a minute. So regardless, if you look at this text here, it says the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Listen, seven centuries before and seven and five centuries before the Jews and the 12 tribes, they had already lost. They'd already lost that identity. Do you remember the history of Israel? Remember in 722, the Assyrians came in and the northern kingdom that was 10 of the tribes totally obliterated them and scattered them. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586 B.C. came in and dispersed them. So they've already been scattered. And yet in this day, in the Roman day, when the Romans were in rule, they were also doing a scattering. And so this identity that he speaks to, the 12 tribes, I don't think he's speaking to, hey, 
you're from this tribe, you're from this tribe. That identity was long lost, but the idea in the New Testament with the Romans ruling at that point is that there's been another dispersion because the Romans were kicking Jews out of Jerusalem. They were kicking kids out of school. They were shutting down businesses because they didn't like their Jewishness. They were racially, we would say, they were racially profiling the Jews and kicking them out of places. That's what was going on in the first century, 10 to 15 years, if you look at it, after the life of Jesus. This is the earliest book, we think, in the New Testament. So if you look at Acts chapter 12 through 15, that's the time frame. And if you go look at Acts 12 through 15, what you're going to see is a lot of persecution. You're going to see the death of James, the brother of John. You're going to see Peter thrown into prison. It's a rough time to be a Christian. It's a rough time to be a Jew. So there is a sense in which there is a double scattering. There is a double dysphoria, if you will. And it involved a ton of persecution because not only they, they got they got profiled racially because they were Jews and they were living in Jerusalem and they got persecuted because of that and then they got persecuted because in the Jewish community who is all getting persecuted by the Romans, now they're getting persecuted doubly because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a rough time and a rough place to be a Christian in the earliest of church. So this is the situation that you see in the early church. Claudius, the Roman emperor of the day, had driven them out of Jerusalem. He had boycotted them. He had thrown their kids out of school. They were living in social and religious limbo. And here's the thing about suffering, if you've ever been through it, really. About, the thing about suffering is, is that it surely can purify and mature us. And this is what James is going to call us, his, these people, too, in the next text, next week. But it also has a confusing and crushing effect on people. And so here's James trying to exhort and to encourage these people to stay in, to be a part, to not give up. And so that's who he's writing to. Here's your point. Your thought for this is regardless of lot, regardless of your lot, we live differently as sojourners. He's calling his people to live differently as sojourners. And by comparison, our life looks way different than that, doesn't it? I mean, I know we live in the U.S. and there is changing times that we live in, but we live in Montgomery County, like the Bible Belt. We don't have the level of persecution in any form or fashion that these people did. And yet God still is calling us to live differently as sojourners. Here's the problem for them. The problem, if I could summarize it, the problem for them would have been to not give up. I think the problem for us is actually to not give in. To not let the clinching of the world around us, the decadent clinching of the world around us, overwhelm us and have our hearts. I know that's my problem. My problem is, is that there's so many things of the world that I want. Look at this guy. Way to go. Appreciate it. There's so many things of the world that I want. And so it's, it's less about giving up and more about giving in and saying and just settling. But as a believer, what happens is, is every time, Every time I give in and every time I say, man, I want this in the world. I want status and lot. 
And I want this new golf club. And I want, that's how bad it is. I mean, that's, that's nothing. It doesn't leave me in satisfaction and joy. And so I think for us to live differently as sojourners, it's, it's certainly the same principle. It's a different side of the coin. But we're certainly called to live as sojourners. Nothing in this world will satisfy you, will satisfy me. And this is what James is going to be reminding these people of, to never give up, to never give in. So James shows us humility. It shows us the audience. And so we're to be sojourning servants. That's what we've seen so far. But what are some of the themes that we see in this book? You know, James is really interesting if you study it. There's all these different topics. It kind of feels like Proverbs. You know, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you actually see a good picture of what James does. But there's all these different topics. So what are the unifying themes? Surely the unifying theme is faith that works. But I think over all of that, I, I would just say that the book of James shows us wisdom. It shows us wisdom for living out our faith as sojourners, as servants. And so your point here is this. Regardless of the situation, the word of God is our source of wisdom. Do we need that right now? Regardless of the situation that comes up in the world that we live in, the word of God is our source of wisdom. It's our source of wisdom when we go through suffering and trials, chapter one. It's our source of wisdom when everyone's talking and talking and talking rather than doing, chapter one, it's our source of wisdom when dealing with the sin of partiality. And in that day, it was between rich and poor and how people and leadership treated between rich and poor. Wisdom for that. Wisdom with our mouths in chapter three. Slow to speak, quick to listen. So what does it look like to tame our tongue? He has some great insight on that. What does it look like to live in this world? What does it look like with money? What does it look like to be patient through suffering? It's an action-oriented wisdom that James is going to give us in his book. So regardless of the situation, wisdom for living comes from God's word. It comes from God's word. 2016, my oldest was nine, my youngest was seven, and we didn't have Samuel yet. And we decided we were gonna to go to Rocky Mountain National Park. And we were going to spend the week in cooler weather, rather than being in Houston area, 105, like, and there were like 90% Texans there. So we go, and my experience with hiking was, was pretty simple at that point. It was, there's the 14er, let's go climb it. I had a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I didn't know about the All Trails app that's really cool yet that will tell you who you should take on a hike, how far you should go, ratings. I knew none of that. I knew none of that. And so I did, we decided to go up a trail, and there were two forks in that trail. The one we were going to go on, which was a shorter hike with a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, uh, it came through a gorge. Well, that gorge, we didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't do my homework. That gorge was ripped out a couple years before because a big flood came. And so I just turned the other direction. There was only one other path, and we turned and went up that path. And I had the worst, like, map. I had a physical map. I felt like I was in the 80s with my, with my map. I didn't have an app 
just had this map, and it generically kind of told me where to go. One of the things we started noticing after about four hours hiking was that there weren't any kids on this hike, none. There, there were like 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds with packs, like they were staying overnight. I'm like, babe, we're just going to keep going. So the emotions going on for me were, we're going to finish this hike. And we get to, it's like four in the afternoon. Sun's going down about nine. And my wife finally turned my neck. <laughs> she said, we have to stop. And so I kept going and the kids went back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we stop. And we start coming down. And it gets closer to dark. We haven't had water in a couple hours. And we finally get down. And I, I look back at my kids. They're not so happy. I'm like, you know, the great thing about this is you will never forget it. They're like, sure, Dad. So a couple days later, we took a day off. A couple days later, we went on another hike. And I was going to be the guide. And they weren't having it. How much further, Dad? Just a couple of turns. Yeah, right. We went to Goodrich Park last week. And my kids, instead of turning to me, as the travel guy, they turned to my wife and said, how far is it? There's still effects to me being a really poor travel guide for my kids on a hike. You know, I think about that example and I think about the importance. And the Bible is more than this, for sure. But the importance of having the right travel guide. The next year, you know what I did? I got, all, I got turned on to all trails. And if you've ever been hiking, it's glorious because it gives you the way. It tells you what kind of hike you should take. It gives reviews. I was much more educated at that point. We had a glorious hike, even though my wife was leading it because they still didn't trust me. But the point is this. The Bible is a travel guide for us. It gives us wisdom to navigate life. When our emotions are off the chart, when our path gets cut off, when we don't know how to respond, when we live in a day like last week, this week, and the next couple of weeks, we can't navigate those paths with our emotions, our best intentions. The Word of God is wisdom for us to navigate life. We need to remember that. I need to remember that when I post on social media because I'm frustrated about something. I need to remember that, that it's our source, and as Christians, that's the message that we have. Not only is it the message we have, it's the hope that the world has, whether they realize it or not, that the gospel is what brings change. And so regardless of situation, the word of God is our source of wisdom. So wisdom for living comes from the word of God as we sojourn as servants. Let me just close with this. A couple years ago, there was a national poll had a lot of people that participated in it. And you had to, it was effectively one question. Give us one word that would describe you. One word to describe you. This is to Americans. One word to describe you. And there were a lot of different answers. And the most frequently answered word, there were a number of them. Me, that's, that's genius, right? Me, myself, concerned, ranked really high misrepresented really high. But you know the answer that was double all the other answers? 
Who are you? One word. And people said, American, which is a good answer. It's a good answer. It's not a bad answer. I've been to five continents. I haven't been to Antarctica. I haven't been to Australia. I've been to five continents, and I've spent some time there. And there is no other place that I would rather live and raise my family than right here. With all of our warts, warts and all of our problems, there's no other place that I would rather live and be. So hear that. But supposedly we're a country with a lot of Christians in it. And that didn't make the list. Listen, you and I as Christians, is our, that is our primary identity. That is who we are. And the Bible says that we are sojourners and exiles here who serve him and we serve our one true and wise king. We need to live as sojourners. We need to live as exiles. And yes, should we care for the welfare of the city? As Jeremiah said, absolutely. Should we care about being involved? Absolutely. But the message of James is this. As sojourners, our faith has to be the real deal here. Our faith has to be the real deal. It can't be talk. It has to be action. And you're going to see that all the way through the book of James. As we walk through this book, we're going to see that our faith has to be the real deal. It has to be the real deal with contentment. Contentment through trials and sufferings. It has to be the real deal with our speech. You know when you get to chapter 3, there's a lot of metaphors about our speech. One of the metaphors is a stream. It comes from a spring. Is what coming out salt water and pure water? No. The message is, is what comes out ought to be pure. What comes out ought to be spring water rather than salty water. Kids, you ever had salt water? You ever get it in your mouth when you go to the beach? It's not good. And so that's the way our speech should be. That's the real deal. Should be the real deal in our dealings with one another as we think about future plans, if the Lord wills. That's what James says. I need to hear that. I needed to hear that through COVID. I still need to hear it. If the Lord wills. I have all these plans, which are great. If the Lord wills. And it's true in relationships. It's what we see in the book of James, that we should confess to one another. And we also should confront one another when necessary. And last, what does it look like to love our neighbors? How are you the real deal when you love your neighbors? And the specific examples that James will give are to the poor, to the orphan, and to the widow. The least of these. How do we love our neighbor, the poor, the orphan, the widow? It's a book of action. Hope you'll tune in. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how your word, as we come to James, speaks to us today. It speaks to us in a, in a troubled day. But we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we have been given life in the gospel, not because we're worthy of it, not because we've done something to deserve it, but because you've saved us. You saved us from our sins, what the Bible says. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for salvation that you grant us because of Christ. I pray for anybody here that doesn't yet know Christ experience the gospel change that comes from that. So Lord, we pray you would use your word with your people. We pray that as we close today, as we come to a close today, you would remind us how sweet it is to come together as the body of Christ, to sing your praises, to worship you, to learn from your word as we go out into our crazy world. We pray that we'd be a people on mission for you in this world. 
that we would do that as salt and light in Jesus' name. Amen.